how to meet your market demands. So we talked about the marketing side of it, going to farmer's market, having a CSA, selling to restaurants or wholesale. Great, so now we know how to sell it, but now we need to know how to grow it, right? Which is the tricky part. <laughs> um, maybe not tricky, but by God's grace, he shows us all these things. So how to meet your market demands. Deciding your reflection. Larry Lesher is going to talk to you about that. <laughs> Here, I'll hold this. I'll hold this too. But you don't hold it close enough. So, I said deciding your reflection, and the reason I, the reason I chose to, to sort of frame it that way, I wasn't sure if I wanted to say it that way, but I did. Um, what you put out there is a reflection of who you are. And if you're a follower of Christ, it should, should look like that. And quality is key. And so I wrote quality, quantity, or both. And ideally, it's both. But in my mind, if one of them has to go, it's quantity. Because quality will go a lot farther. The quantity is going to come if you do the right thing. The Lord has promised He would restore this. He would work through us to heal the lands. That's the promise to Israel. I accept the promise at face value. I accept it as fact. And so, if I do what I'm called to do, I will accept that as fact. And so, what I'm concerned with is the quality that leaves the farm because what the quality is is a picture, a reflection of who I am and I should be reflecting Christ. Does everybody agree with that? everybody understand what I mean by that? And so, there's some, some basic principles that you want to ask yourself about how you're going to achieve quantity, and that is how much land do you have? So that can determine how you work that land. For me, one of the questions that was fundamental for me, because she was at work, I was the farm. I was the farmer, I was the harvester, I was the planter, I was the bed prep. And I did have help, but I was there every day a lot by myself. And so that's a limiting factor. And so we have to look at our limiting factors and be realistic. I had a good friend when I started farming. I actually started farming as a partnership with him and an, another young lady. And every year he had this, this amazing farm. He says, it is so easy to plant a lot of food. And you have this huge garden. It is so much work to harvest all that food. <laughs> so you can create a whole lot of work if you don't understand every one of those seeds is going to turn into something that has to be managed. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? I just so wanna... we got to think about our ability to meet that, the end of the process, not just the planting part of the process. Yeah, and I just wanted to reiterate um, that when I was able to quit my job in June... It just changed the whole dynamic of the farm. So being able to do it with your wife or husband or your children, it's just, it's huge. It becomes a lifestyle. Um, and you see the joy on our faces in this picture? We had planted onions for four seasons and failed every single season. And onions are very hard to grow. 
I mean, they're very hard to seed. They're hard to plant. They're tiny and they're close together. And you would do it one year, they failed. The next year, they failed. And year four, I'm like, honey, can we just stop planting onions? And he said, well, we'll never know if they're going to grow if we stop planting them. So he was faithful. I said, I can guarantee you they fell if we don't plant them. Yeah. So he was faithful. I was ready to quit. Well, last year we had onions. We were so excited. This is like the, the, the highlight of our season last year. And um, it just goes to show if you don't give up, just keep planting things. I mean, you want to be wise about it, um, but it was through years of building the soil and really tending to it properly that we finally got an onion harvest out of it. So, yeah, what manpower do you have? That's a, that's a really key question because what you plant is going to require a lot of that manpower down the road. So keep that in mind with what you decide scale-wise. Um, if you've grown stuff before and you're not new to growing things, then you have a reflection you can look back on. You can look at your past and say, okay, have I successfully done that before? And what does it entail? And you base what you're going to do on that, obviously. Um, economic viability. So we've had to take, I like to grow a lot of things. I like to experiment with things. I like new foods. And so for me, one of the most difficult things was cutting things out of the farm. So this year I told you we went and cut a third of the farm out. And so we had to take a really hard look at, okay, we grow six different kinds of cucumbers that might not really be. We put lemon cucumbers on the table every year, and we come home with lemon cucumbers often. But see, I really like them, so we kept growing them, but I think we've decided to not grow them this year because really nobody buys them, and I could live with all the other kinds of cucumbers. So. And so, like, really narrowing down, even if you cut a lot of stuff out, there's, I mean, thousands of options. And so... Getting that down to a practical, viable, economically viable solution can be very difficult because for me, I also don't want to just grow 12 things. That is not a viable option for me either. And so having a high diversity garden, but intelligently select what you're going to grow and be purposeful in selecting it. We want that cucumber and that cucumber because they two, they, they hit specific needs. One, you want, so we chose to do a suya long. It's an open pollinated. I want open pollinated cucumber. It's an English style cucumber. It trellises well. People don't, it's a, a kind of an unusual cucumber. So markets like it and we can educate our customer base around it, which we have done now. It's a delicious cucumber it grows well. and it grows well. So these were, okay, that helps us make the decision. Lemon cucumbers, they grow really well. They come on later. It comes on at a different time. That's useful. Um, but no one really buys them. We've sold them. We've told them about them. It's just not something people are interested in. Do we really want to grow that, continue to grow something that no one really wants? So those are hard decisions to make. And so you just have to bite the bullet and make that decision. So real quick, just to clarify. So I have a question for Larry. Larry, what, what made you continue to plant the onions year after year if they kept failing? Onions are extremely profitable, one. If you grow an onion, you're going to sell the onion. It, it, if it actually bulbs, people buy onions, and they pay a good price for onions. It's, if you bunch onions, if you get a storage onion, you're going to compete with the grocery stores, and if you buy onions, which I assume you do, you know that 
they're not that expensive an item. But if you bunch three onions together with the green tops, all of a sudden it's a dollar an onion. It's a three dollar purchase. Is that a good answer? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, and we've we've talked a lot about how you're going to sell what you grow, but the concept here is just to reflect on that. You know, before you're planting it, to be thinking about how you're going to sell it. That's our next slide here. Okay, and then what do you eat? We talked about that. So this isn't only about providing produce for the community. We want the farm to be sustainable. We want it to be able to feed us. Um, so um, we eat the food that we grow. We live off of the sweet potatoes and winter squash that we grow. We live off that all winter. I do a lot of canning and processing and dehydrating and freezing, and we're living off of this food um, that we are that we are growing. So you have to keep that in mind also. You have to think about if you just grow four things, then those are going to be what you're going to be eating <laughs> unless you go to the grocery store and spend a lot of money. And we're trying to negate going to the grocery store and spending a lot of money. So um, we want to grow what we like to eat. All right. So that's a small sort of little recap of doing what we're doing. So we're going to get to some practical stuff. So here, we're here at the practical stuff. We're not getting there. Fertility. So when we got there, like I said, it was, it was pretty awful. So it was, a, it was a learning curve for me. Like instant, It was like, uh, I have to do something right now. So I started learning about soil science and how to, to get nutrients back into the farm. Whenever you show up at whatever property you show up at, I can almost guarantee you if something grows, and it probably will, it is lacking nutrients. And when do you realize that you aren't nourished. When you're sick. Spiritual lesson, you realize it at the time of crisis. When you're not nourished, when you don't have proper character, when the crisis comes, character's revealed, it's not developed. And so this ground was showing, this ground was showing it had a bad character. And so I said, okay, Lord, how do we heal this, this ground? How do we make this ground righteous? And so, the first thing you want to do is know, why is it wrong? Get a soil test. And not just any soil test. I'll tell you something about soil tests. Soil tests are not all equal. You need the soil test to report a total CEC, a TCEC. That means, now I'm getting down to the nitty gritty, so. We have 25 minutes to get through this, and I'm going to talk quick. There are classes on all these subjects that are going to more detail, but I'm going to have to talk to you about some detail. I would point you to Kinsey Agriculturals. Um, they will give you a true soil analysis. The numbers that come out of that soil analysis match William Albrecht's numbers. Those are the numbers that pretty much everybody is basing their recommendations on, but they're not doing the same test. So they're getting different numbers to correspond and so so a lot of times people are like well I did soil testing I did the recommendations and it didn't do anything two things when you decided that you weren't going to send anymore tomorrow you were perfect and didn't send anymore right no do you expect your ground as soon as you throw some minerals on it all of a sudden to be perfect tomorrow it's unrealistic it's not a realistic approach and so we have to approach this in a realistic sense it's going to take effort work and perseverance 
to heal that ground and we're going to make mistakes along the way and we're going to have to learn perseverance through and this process. in the process. end, you will get onions. <laughs> Proof is in the pictures there. Um, so those are the soil tests that I recommend you do because they're going to give you right numbers and good recommendations. Just like, what do you do? What do we call it? Righteousness by what? You've got to have faith in something. And you're going to put your faith in something. And you can trust me, but I wouldn't. I say test all things, hold to what is true. And so I'm giving you information. I think it's good, solid information. Go test it. Go prove it. But Kinsey is a good starting place to go look, okay? Um, it's a little more expensive, but you might want to talk to Whitmar. I believe he has a booth this week. He's doing consulting. He can explain some stuff to you in more detail. Two lectures in the main and he has two lectures. Um, there's a roundtable discussion on it. We've given, we're affording a lot of opportunity to get that. That is a starting point. You need to know what you have and what you don't have. If you don't know what you have and don't have, you can't address the problem. You can't put, you're now just shotgunning, trying to see, hopefully I got it right. I'm going to throw something at the, this and, and hopefully it works. But if you've got high calcium and you're like, oh, look, I've got broom sage. Everyone tells me if I have broom sage, I've got, I've got, I need calcium. And you start throwing limestone out there, you're just perpetuating your problem. And so you need to know what your problem is so you can address the problem. That's the first, I mean, that is fundamental and key. The second thing, as soon as they tell you what you want, you're going to be like, okay, I'm going to go down to the local co-op and they're going to be offering you some crazy stuff. And you got to be discerning about what stuff is crazy and what's not crazy. And so you're going to have to figure out clean amendments. And you're like, wait a minute, what do you mean clean amendments? I mean, when things are mine, they come with a lot of stuff. And you can get some bad stuff from people. And so you need to do some research, counsel with some people who have already done that research. You don't need to reinvent the wheel. And so finding clean amendments is going to be critical and, and extremely important. Where's my... Um, Lancaster Ag is over in Pennsylvania. Lancaster Ag is a, is a good source. They are a reliable source. They do a good amount of testing of what they're getting and where they're getting it from so that most of most every product I've ever gotten from them and I ask them a lot of questions and sometimes I'll go back to the mine source to try and find out to make sure it's what I want um, they're a really good company seven springs is also a good company a soil consultant is a very wise investment so if you go to Kinsey Ag I think what's a test Alan 35 or well, it's 35 through Whitmar it's 50 through Kinsey. If you do the consulting, you get the test for 35 and 25 from Whitmar. Um, so it's a, a few, you know, five, what is that, $5 more? $5 more? $10 more? Um, absolutely. So Alan says, make sure that they have your worldview. So if you're going to get somebody to consult for you, and it's not a bad idea, I have a consultant that I work with. I work with Whitmar McConnell. He's a Seventh-day Adventist. He uses Kinsey model. He follows the Albrecht model, and so I have, I'm able to not just say, okay, I got my report, it tells me to do this, I'm, I'm able to call Whitmar now and say, hey, Whitmar, um, you told me you wanted me to do this, this, and this, but so I'm not using any animal manure or any blood mill or bone mill or feather mill or any animal products. Um, what if I use this product? How can we adjust my soil analysis around to use Tennessee brown rock well instead of whatever, you know? He helps. He helps me. He can actually then work me through that process and, and sort of help me, yeah, it's, it's priceless in my opinion. Um, 
The other thing is if you're looking for trace elements like cobalt and molybdenum, they can be almost impossible to find. Almost impossible. But Castle Valley Farm, when Sean Spidell was there, he started sourcing stuff out of Brazil. And so I'm telling you that you can call Castle Valley Farm and get clean sources of cobalt and molly. Um, and that might not make any sense to you right now, but write it down because you're going to know what you want to, you're going to want to know where to find that. When you do your first soil reports, make sure when you do those soil reports, you want to find out about molly and cobalt. Everybody here knows about B12. Is it B12 important for a whole food plant-based diet? Okay, do you know why you need to take a supplement? Because it's not in your food. Do you know why it's not in your food? Because it's depleted in cobalt. Cyanocobalamin, B12. So we want to actually nourish people, right? We want them to have functional minds. That means they need proper nutrition. We need to address all these issues. I'm going to run out of time. So we, add, so, so we add B12 to our dirt so that we can get well, we B12. Well, we add the, the basis of B12. So we're going to talk about application because then you're going to get all these minerals and you're going to be like, how in the world do I put a pound of cobalt on an acre of field? That's impossible. Yeah, how do you do that? Um, and so application becomes very complicated in my estimation. So you can liquid, you can, most of these are going to be able to be liquefied and you can put them in a backpack sprayer or on a boom sprayer on your tractor and go out and application rate, you know, if I put my pound in a 60 gallons of water, now I spray it on my field and you're putting a pound down to the acre. So, you know, you don't want overlap. You don't want these things. They're, they're powerful minerals. And so you want to be as careful and evenly distributed as possible. So, so you have you can put them down by hand. So you take that cobalt and you mix it into all your other minerals and you hand blend those. And this is what we did in a five gallon bucket for a hundred foot bed that's five feet wide. And I go out there with my buckets and I put, I'm doing six beds of salad mix. One, two, three, four, five, six buckets. I go to pick it up and I go down the row and hand spread it. This year we bought a drop spreader. A drop spreader is basically something that has wheels on either side. There's, there's different models and ways they happen. It has slits in the bottom. You, it has an opening gate. You, you adjust that gate to a certain rate and it'll drop it at a certain rate. And you can drive over the bed and it'll just drop it down in lines. You have cone spreaders. Cone spreaders are a big, huge cone. The first year I did it, it's like a big V and at the bottom is a wheel that spins with little hands that sling it out as it falls out the bottom. So there's different methods to get that down. They don't all work equally. There's pendulum spreaders. They have a little thing that sticks out the back and kind of bounces back and forth and throws your minerals that way. What I've learned too and what you'll learn with farming is you do the best you can with what you have. You might not have all these, you know, we did it by hand for four years until we bought the drop spreader because we didn't have the money for it. And then you just learn to really like meditate on the Lord when you're hand sewing all this stuff on so many acres. And it's really good exercise and you're out in the fresh air and it's actually quite enjoyable. I started enjoying it, so... So I'm running pretty quick, and the yeah, reason why is, is I, want to, I want to make sure that you at least get the information. You can go back and you can research this stuff. The internet's an amazing tool. Write it down, go back. What's a drop spreader? Email Look it up. Me. Email me, call me. Email's not so well, call me. Um, email her. It's compost. Um, compost. Compost is great stuff if you need it. Compost can be high in phosphates. If you're high in phosphates, you don't want compost, right? Um, so you need a soil test to know what you want. You need to, when you go to get compost, you need to ask them, do you have a report on this compost? If not, 
If you're doing this for a living, you should probably take that compost and send it off to a lab to find out what in the world's in that compost before you put it on your field. Because you may find out it will wreck everything you're doing. We've heard a lot of stories of people buying compost and then it just introducing a ton of seed, weed seed to their to their farm. So it's important to buy a good quality compost. And like Larry said, a good quality compost, you ask the people there, they will have an analysis on their compost already. Yeah. A good company will. So talk about the tea. I'm going to so, video. So um, what we did is we started bringing in Alaskan humates. So we actually bought Alaskan soil and brought it down for biological inoculants. And we make compost tea out of it. And so compost tea is a good way to get biology down on the ground. You, we bought a microscope. We look at the, the, the original material to see what the biological life is in it. Turn around, we brew it, and we put food in that brew that will actually cause that microbial life to grow and brew it up. We bought a, a boom sprayer this year, and we spray the compost down on the fields, and that we inoculate our fields with biology to try and bring life back. This is our brewer that we, I built this. I didn't buy it. I actually bought the tank and, and put all the components together. And, and so this one actually has a whirlpool in it, which restructures water. So water naturally, like rain, when it falls, it does a whirlpool motion. If you ever look in creeks and natural flowing, they don't just flow straight. They, they have, I mean, they do flow straight, but they have whirlpools in them constantly. And so water wants to be structured that way. So we did that in our, our water. Um, and so compost tea is a wonderful source. It can be a good tool. You can create bad compost and bad compost tea. And so you need to, to consider what that is. I have a recipe. If anybody's interested in my recipe, I can share that with you. I was going to put it up on the screen, but it, wouldn't, it just wouldn't. Oh, I did put it on. The, here it is. Actually, I did get it in there. So that's our recipe. Um, it says compost. I used the Alaskan humates. If you get good compost, you can use, you can replace either way, seven pounds. Um, steel cut oats, two, two cups. Uh, coconut sugar. Uh, sugars, you want a low glycemic index sugar. You don't want a high sugar because the sugars actually can create too high of a biological explosion and then you end up getting an anaerobic situation at the end of the process. Um, and so I use coconut sugar, liquid kelp, olive oil. So oils are good to feed fungi. And so that's why the olive oil is in there. Um, humic acid and fulvic acid. And then at the end of the process, when I'm done brewing it, you can add mycorrhizal fungi. Um, and that you can also add in. I do it about nine and three-eighths of a cup. Nine and three-eighths cup um, at the end of the brew. And that will basically... Uh, be a good thing to spray down on the field. One of the other really cool, cool things about farming is that you become a mechanic, you become a scientist, <laughs> you become a repairman, very creative thing. And so um, Larry built the compost brewer and it's quite awesome uh, thing that he did there. And it's, it's been a, an experience for us. It's been challenging. Um, because it's not just like, oh, it's a quick thing to do. It's so easy, and you just brew it, and then you spray it. No, it's like a three-day ordeal because it's a timing thing. Uh, you want it to be alive, so you have to spray it pretty quickly after you brew it. It's, it's a very short window of time if you want to do it right. Um, so 
with the being a little bit more tricky, please do not hesitate to contact us if you have, you know, specific questions about that. Yeah, I mean, it's alive. The whole premise here is that you're creating biology, living things, and you, they have parameters they need to live in. So we have a bubbler in there that's oxygenating that water to keep that water at a high oxygen level. So you, you, you need to, see me afterwards, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, the microscopes are expensive. If you go to Elaine Ingham's web, website, Elaine Ingham, and, and she has some very good, she's probably the most knowledgeable person on biology that, that I know. There, I'm sure there's better, but um, she's really good. She has a recommendation for microscopes on her website. Um, that's, I just bought her recommendation. It, it was, uh, I think I found it on Amazon for $500. They aren't cheap. But if you're going to put biology down on your field, you probably want to know what you're putting on your field. And you want to know if it's working. You want to be able to... Elaine Ingham. Yeah. If you look her up, she'll come up. Just She's, put soil biology. Yeah, soil biology, Elaine Ingham, it'll come up. Um, so, you've got your fields all prepped up. Well, not prepped up, but... Fertility. Fertilized and... You've you're got your test, and so you need to probably order some seeds. Um, so reputable seed companies are imperative. If you go to the local hardware store and you buy the packet that was from two years ago because they didn't sell it and it's still hanging on the wall, you probably aren't going to get good germination. You want reputable seed companies that have guarantees on their... Well, I say guarantees. They've done their best to make sure that their seeds are going to germinate properly, that when you buy arugula seed, you're not getting weed seed, you're actually getting arugula seed. Um, yeah, give the company minutes. to do a lot of slides. No, okay. Aubrey and them are speaking for 20 minutes. Oh, dear. Um, so um, high mowing seeds is a, a very reputable company. Uh, Fedco seeds, wild garden seed, Johnny Selective seeds, um, and I use Baker Creek selectively. They're a good company. Um, they really have a lot of varieties that you just can't get anywhere else. Is their, their, their biggest plus in my mind is that they have things that you won't find anywhere else. And they're, they're great for small gardens. They're really good for small gardens, like backyard gardens, because you can try a really a lot of cool stuff that they have. I just wanted to add in there the flower uh, seeds. So I'm going to repeat those again for people that are taking notes. So for the, the produce, it's high mowing. Fedco, Wild Garden Seeds, Johnny's Seeds, and Baker Creek. And there are more. Those are just the ones that we order from. The flower, there's um, different types of flowers. So you, get da you can get dahlia tubers. There's seeds, flower seeds, and there's also chromes. So there's different things for flowers that you can buy. Um, I have wonderful Mennonite neighbors that I get a lot of my dahlia bowl, uh, tubers from. Um, but there are a couple, uh, they're called Wild Willows Farm, and they're in Indiana. They're a great uh, resource for dahlia tubers. Glockner is a good resource for dahlias as well. They're kind of larger quantities, so if you can get 25 larger quantity, you're going to get them for less through Glockner. And then Geo Seeds is a good one for flowers. And then uh, Florette. Farmer also has a lot of nice seeds. She's kind of expensive, but she has specialty ones that are hard to find other places. And her pictures are very nice to yeah. see what the flowers actually look like on her website. I'd say the same about Baker Creek. Um, if you, seed catalogs are free. 
So if you want just a good catalog to look at the pictures to decide what you want to grow, uh, Baker Creek has beautiful seed catalogs. And we spend hours, hours upon hours, picking out what we want to grow, doing inventory on what we have. Um, you have to look at what you have from the year before, and then you have to look at the dates on the seed packet. So I always recommend as soon as a seed packet comes in the mail, write the date on it because they don't always have the date. And some seeds, I mean, if they're not viable, you're going to be wasting a lot of time seeding things that aren't going to germinate. Um, that's why storage is important as well. You want to make sure to store them in a cool, dry place that's dark. Um, and then using a spreadsheet to manage inventory is one thing we do with our seeds. <laughs> we do an inventory on what we have, uh, what we want to grow, and just... So we'll, we'll do what I put the spreadsheet together. And so what we'll do is kind of get price points from high mowing, Fedco, um, and different seed companies. And that way, in the program I created, it'll tell me which one was cheapest. <laughs> and then it'll tell me my totals at the end. Cheapest. Okay. So next um, is seeding and transplanting. And so, okay. so I'm really sorry that we're talking kind of fast, but we're going to run out of time. So seeding and transplanting. So... We talked about fertility. We talked about ordering the seeds and the different seed companies. So now you're going to actually start seeding the seeds. So the starts mix. So most people, most normal, logical people, go out to the store and just buy a starts mix. But we're growing with a standard that's called veganic. So we actually have no animal waste um, in our farm. So we've been making our own starts mix. It has been very difficult. I'll just be very honest. <laughs> it has not been easy to grow a veganic, uh, to create a veganic starts mix that helps that plant to live through as long as it needs to live through before it goes in the ground. We have gotten a better recipe through the years, um, which I'll let you talk about, but you have to be quick. Um. Pre-made specialty blends is what we used to do in Seattle. So we could go to this place, Specialty Soils, and tell them what we wanted them to make. And that was great because then, you know, we could work with them and they knew how much nitrogen it needed, how much phosphorus, how much potassium, and we could figure that out through sources and, and get a specialty blend it make. That doesn't happen in Indiana. And so you, the next thing is you go to bag mix. If you're anywhere... If you don't realize it, everything pretty much has a charge in it, and it's usually not labeled on the bag. And so for me, I call the company and I say, okay, what's the charge? And they say, oh, it'll have bone mill, blood mill, feather mill, and it's not on the list. So if you're trying to avoid those things, it's in most of the, the starts mix, and you may not see it on the ingredients list. You've got to call them and ask them about that. Um, and so we started doing our own blends and trying to figure out what the ratio is to, to those nitrogen quantities or those phosphorus and those potassium and other trace elements that are going to get that plant all the way to the place where you can transplant it. I have a recipe. It is a recipe in, process, you know, in progress. It works well. Um, the other thing you would con I think we we're not considering enough of is water. When you water stuff, do you have bicarbonates in your water? We did a soil, a water test to find out what our water was what was in our water do we have high sulfur do we have is it a high calcium water is it an acidic water because that's going to have an impact on your starts real big impact that's a small cell and the water has huge influence on it and so those are things to to keep up 
We have one minute of slide from here on out. <laughs> so this is a picture of our living room. So year after year, we've started our plants in our living room. Early plants. It's pretty awesome, right? Everyone wishes their living room looked like this, right? <laughs> so this year, he built me a starts house, a heated starts house, and we'll show a picture of it here in a minute. Um, so starts mix is important, the different tra oh, yeah. trays that you purchase. You can do soil blocks. Timing is important. Um, learning, like you don't want to seed a bunch of stuff early, and then it gets so big before you can actually put it out there because that can cause a lot of stress. Like tomatoes is a perfect example. We always want early tomatoes, but if they get too big for the cell, then you have to transplant them all into pots before you can put them out again. That's a whole other process that you have to do. You have to think of space. So you really have to try to think about timing and when things can, once they're seeded, how many days. And this is where the seed catalogs are great. Most of you probably already know this. A seed catalog is going to tell you length of, from germination to, to transplant or to harvest. <clears throat> And you talked um, about watering, so let's go. Some of the story. trays, I want to, I did want to hit on trays. Does, I think we have a picture. They're soil blocks, so, yeah, so these are soil blocks. Go back. Okay, yeah, so here's soil blocks. That's how you make soil blocks. That's really great. They air prune. They have certain challenges to them. Handling them can be difficult. Making them can be quite laborious. Alan says torture. He did it for years. I stopped doing it. <laughs> um, but if you do a soil, a soil tray, most soil trays have a solid, they're solid round or they're octagon. You know, they have these shapes to them. And do you see this top picture here? They call that root wrap. And that is, once you do that, your roots are going to want to grow like this now and not down and out. And so they have their problems. And so you, timing on that. You want to make sure the way that one of the methods that we do to know when a transplant is ready is, is we pop one out and say, okay, the roots are fully developed. They need to go in the ground now before they start wrapping. And that's a good way to sort of see what's going on. Um, this is our sheet when we seed. So we put the date, how many flats we seeded, sorry, what it was, how many cells total from those flats that we seeded, who did it. Because if something happens, I want to find out why they did what they did. Um, and if, if we're really on it, then we come back and say, what was the germination? So, you know, you, have a, you don't have a 100-cell tray, but for mathematics simplicity, so you had a 100-cell tray, 10 didn't germinate, you had 90% germination, right? So now you know those seeds are still good and viable. You might want to make a note if they didn't, if they weren't viable, we need new seed. Order more, you know, replace, whatever. Um, when, they went in, when you transplant them into the bed, you, if you can keep this much data, it's great. We obviously, you can see ours is not, not kept. Um, what bed did you transplant them in? Initial who transplanted that out? Um, when did you harvest that? Initial who harvested it? And that way you can start to have real metrics and start to see what's working and what's not working. Um, prepping beds. So... After you've soil tested, you've gotten your, your amendments, you've put your amendments down, you're going to prep your beds up. Um, you've got your starts going, and so starts are almost ready. We're going to start prepping beds. Um, so after the soil test, you've hand spread or you've drop spread or whatever. want to mention tarps here, stale bedding. You have to be way out ahead of all this. So way back when you were ordering seeds even, 
You throw some tarps over those beds, it's going to kill all that grass down. It's going to kill the, the root systems on that grass a lot of times. You're going to take that tarp off, and you're going to have some pretty nice dirt to work with. It, if you use landscape fabric, water gets through. If you use solid plastic, it literally keeps it dry. You moisten it when you start. You moisten it when you start, and it'll just sort of be a nice, nice, consistent bed. And obviously rain will seep in the edges and stuff, but for the most, side, most of the bed, it'll be nice beds. Um, after you get your either a stale bed or whatever you're going to do, so if you do stale beds, you may not have to do primary tillage. For us, we do primary tillage with a spader. I have a video on here we're going to show you in just a second of a spader. Um, most people use a tiller probably. Um, you don't want to powderize your soil. Um, you want to try and leave it, you want a nice clean bed to, to seed into, so you want to do it shallow as you can to create a seed bed. But if you start just working that soil over, you're destroying your microbial life. Your, any fungi, hyphae, or any, any hypha that has developed, mycorrhiza, fungi, you're just, it's dead, it's, there's, it's gone. And so you want to be intelligent about your tillage. You know, you need to do enough to make it functional, you can do the job you need to do, but you really want to try and incorporate processes that eliminate that as much as possible. Um, I'll show you the, what we do, and I'll give you some tips on what we plan to do. No, 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 you're way... Stop jumping ahead. I'm okay with six minutes. It's okay. Um, so we weigh the pros and cons of tractor, BCS, permanent raised beds. Those are different systems by which we would have a bed system. Um, where, did, where did we so come from? Here, I don't, I don't, you lost me. So, sorry. The, the different tractors that are out there, like this G, this Alice Chalmers G, is a wonderful tractor because it's very lightweight. You know, we don't want to compact the soil. That affects the microbial life as well. So we're very careful in our bed system. We don't walk on our bed system ever um, because you don't want to compact the soil. And that's where... The tractor, this G tractor is very nice because it's very light. It doesn't yeah. compact the soil a lot. So what I've done is I try to use, I use a tractor. I recognize the tractor can be very damaging. And so a lot of people have gone to raise beds. I also read Spirit of Prophecy, it says till deep and till often. And so a no-till system, you've got to manage that correctly. Most people are using a broad fork that breaks the ground deep. That's a practical system. I think it meets our requirements as I understand them. Um, and so you can have these permanent raised beds. And if you're interested in that, there's, there's folks out there that can teach that. That's not what I do, so I can't tell you, you know, it's not my experience. I, I can't really share it with you. I can point you to, you know, Jean-Martin and different folks that are working that system. Um, but the BCS is another good option. Um, all of these systems will work. A BCS is a walk-behind two-wheel tractor. Um, People are using them successfully. I'm not down on any one of these systems. You decide what's going to work for you and where you're at and your situation. We use a tractor because that's how I've always done it. And I'll tell you how I do it and why I do it. We create permanent system. Our tractor paths are our walk paths, and we always drive on the walk paths. We never drive on the beds. I want to say never. It is hard-pressed to get me to drive on my beds, though. And so we're trying to create that same idea and that tilt of a permanent bed. Um, weight, pros and cons, you know, the BCS tractor is very light. You can get out there if it's wet. 
my tractor, if it's really, really wet, I gotta wait till it dries up, that ground firms up, or else I'll make huge ruts in the field and ruin everything that I'm trying to maintain. And so, um, the G, that's another one of the tools, the G, that little tractor you see there. Oh, you're on the spader. Okay, so this is a spader. It's a mechanical shovel. You see it, it should go here, yeah. And it literally digs 10 to 12 inches deep. And so I'm working the ground deep, creating no spear, smear, no plow pan. And it's just, you can see the field, how grassy it is and what it turns it into. So that's a primary tillage tool. It's getting most of my grass turned under. It's working the beds deep, but it's not creating any, any hard pan. So we'll come in after that and we use a tiller. I would like to move to what is, a, what is known as a power, do you see who's driving that tractor? Um, that's my wife. Um, so we try to do it shallow and you can see, it's very difficult to control the depth of that thing. So eventually we plan to move to what's called a power harrow. It has a roller basket on the back. That will actually allow me to work the ground at whatever depth I set that roller at. So I can work it two inches deep, create a shallow seed bed, and I won't be destroying all that microbial life underneath. Power harrow. Yeah. Okay, so we have just, because it's Ellen Moon site, we have 14 more slides in two more minutes. We have two minutes for 14 slides. So this is what I'm just going to ask everyone. Um, we can stop on time and just not so be... Let's, I got, let's, I'm going to hit some of the highlights and we're going to skip a little bit of stuff here. I'm going to look at transplanting. And so we transplant it by hand for a long, long time. That means I'd take my fingers, I'd have transplants, I'd lay them on the ground, I'd stick my finger in the ground, I'd stick my finger in the ground and transplant the transplant in. Every transplant. It means I'm bent over most of the day, which is fine. I loved it. It's, it's wonderful. I like touching the plants. I like touching the dirt. It was great. But... We bought a Hatfield transplanter and it looked like this. Now, now our work goes something like this. Can you play that? Here, here. Oh. I'm going to show you what that looks like. Where did it go? Down here. So, here we go. This is uh, transplanting. So we do a little bit of social media. We're on Instagram. I got the most likes out of this thing, like thousands of more likes than I've ever had on anything I've ever posted on Instagram. It's an awesome tool. It saves your back. And um, it's just called... We just planted that field. There. This is what we just planted. All it's a Hatfield transplanter. It's very quick. So it's a very useful tool, but it takes two people. So transplanting the seeds that you start, and the next option is direct seeding. So there's different ways to direct seed also. There's different things you would direct seed and different things you would transplant, obviously. Um, things you would transplant would be like brassicas, things that are bigger, 18-inch spacing, you know, things that are easier in that sense. Things you want higher volume and denser plantings, you would direct seed. Carrots. People do transplant carrots. Carrots are taprooting. It, it is a more complicated process. People do it. Um, there are ways that you can do it, but starting out, generally speaking, um, you would transplant things like salad mix, turnips, radish, arugula, totsoy, uh, carrots, beets, braising mix. So another thing we've learned through the years is germination. 
Once you direct seed something, it's pretty delicate. If you don't keep that seed bed moist, then those little seeds can't pop through. And so what we have done, especially with our salad mixes, is we will put row cover over the beds right after we seed and water. And it sort of protects them. Like if we get a heavy rain, then that row cover helps to protect the little seedlings. So until it germinates, we keep that row cover over the bed and keep the bed moist. And then once it germinates, we will remove the row cover. And that's helped a lot with our germination. So here's a picture of the greenhouse. You see the rose? Um, that's using the direct seeder. Oops, sorry. Well, we'll just... And then this is a, an example of different types of irrigation. Alan is going to talk a lot about irrigation, so we're not going to go into that very much. But this just... Friday session. He's doing a class on irrigation. Friday session six. So we've talked about planting, direct seeding. So now... You can see the, the drip tape. So you saw the overhead, the one that was... That's, those are called wobblers. This is drip tape that you see laying in the field there, the little black strips. Yeah. It's a metered watering system. So if you have soaker hoses, you ever run circle hoses, and it'll all bleed out one end, and lot waters here and okay. a little bit here. Those are supposed to be a pressurized system so that it emits at a certain pressure, and they'll water more evenly. So then you have the plants in the ground, and you've watered them, and then all the weeds start to come. What do you do now? <laughs> so we have some cultivating equipment that we use. So this is our G set up with what's called beet sweeps. And this takes some skill. Larry does this. I don't do this. So that's one form of cultivation. This, um, there's also hand tools. The ground cover. Uh, these are some pictures of the different things to use for cultivation. Oh, sorry. It's clicking too fast. Yeah. I am on. Alright. So this is called landscape fabric. You see all that black plastic? And so one of the things you can do is you can put that down. We burn holes in it. And it'll last us. We've had it for, what, three or four years now? Mm -hmm. And it should last us another three or four years. And then I'll mention here in this big picture, the two ladies there, that's my mom and Larry's mom. So they do a lot of hand weeding. Hand weeding is very therapeutic. It's actually my favorite thing to do. You see this bed and it looks terrible. And then you hand weed and you see that you save these little plants and it looks so nice and clean when you're done. And they spend hours together hand weeding and they talk and they, you know, think about God and things of nature. So hand weeding is a wonderful thing. And then the wheel hoe in the top, that was a present for Larry on a special occasion, and that has saved a lot of hours. The wheel hoes are a really good investment. Um, our, oh dear, going the wrong direction. So we are actually out of time. Um, Alan and Aubrey are going to come up now. We have a, just a few more slides that are on like hoop house production and what we grow in our hoop houses. Just, are you okay with us going a little bit over in the break time? Is that okay with everyone so that we can get through these slides? You sure? Anyone opposed to that? Raise your hand. Okay, we're good. So, 15 minute break. It's 15 minute break. So if we go into that for, no. Well, no, the break goes, it's lunch. It's in 10 more minutes, so. If I can just get five more minutes, and then Alan and Aubrey are going to come up for 15. Are we good with that?
Okay. So Field and Hoop House production. Just go to the next ones for me. The main things there is you're going to help with disease control because it's a controlled environment. You're going to protect the plants from rain. We put the fabric, landscape fabric, down in the greenhouses so it protects the dirt. So like with tomatoes, they're very high disease probability in tomatoes, and they get a lot of the disease from the dirt. So if you have a uh, row cover or not row cover, uh, landscape fabric down, it's going to protect the plant from getting dirt thrown up on it or splashed on it. You can control the watering much better. Uh, you can control the temperature much better. The trellising is important because it really helps with airflow. We trellis all of our cucumbers um, in the greenhouse, and the tomatoes in the greenhouse, because it just really helps them to be up and tall, and they get the airflow, and it's less disease. Uh, it also helps with season extension. Right now, we have turnips, radishes, arugula, spinach, and totsoy in greenhouses at home, and we're harvesting off of those and selling them through the winter and eating that food through the winter. Go to the next one. Do you like that? So, Alan is going to, you're going to talk about season, or um, succession planting, right, Alan? Yeah. Okay. So, Alan's going to go through, I, I was telling some people, he's got a pattern of, like, the date to maturity and how you plant it with the expectation of that, that uh, date to maturity. Um. So next is harvesting. So we use uh, the, the, the salad greens harvester. Um, it does save in a lot of time. So we'll just show you a little video about that. It works really well with uh, arugula. It saves us a lot of time. So you can imagine... We actually harvest with a knife for most things, and we would have cut that by hand with a knife. All of our salad mix is hand cut. If you can get beds that are clean without weeds and arugula is fast growing, it's easier to do that. It is a very, very time-saving device. No. And yeah, Jonathan Dysinger has those available here at the conference. He, he invented that. Okay, next I'm just gonna show you a little picture of the flower harvest that I do. So um, I just do bouquets in mason jars, and like I had mentioned before, they do really great at the market. And then next, we had to include a slide of our cat. He loves to harvest with us. He works really hard out there in the field, you can see. as you can see, but that's us picking arugula. And then the, the salad harvester there, this is just going to show you a little bit about processing and packing. Okay, so for those of you that watched the video, I just posted on the quick cut greens harvester from Farmer Friend. Um, this is the end product. It's 12 and a half pounds of arugula in probably like 5 to 10 minutes. 
So what took five to ten minutes with the harvester would have definitely have taken me maybe two hours by hand. So I want to talk about so. this for a minute. When you, you come in from the field, there's a couple things. When you're harvesting in the field, you definitely want to be considering that the plant isn't laying in the sun. And when you're harvesting stuff, even if you're tucking it under, like, be sure you don't lose them. Count. You need 10 bunches. You need 20 bunches, 30 bunches. I, we use twist ties. We count out 30 of them. We get in. We're going to bring it into the wash station. There should be, they should be all there. Um, when you get into the wash station, you want to decide, does this thing go in the water or not? Hydro cooling is fundamental. If, something, if you have greens and you don't put them in water, even if they look good and you put them in the cooler, they're going to wilt. And so water, they need to go in water. Don't leave them in the water too long, but they can be in the water for quite a while. Um, and you want to get them fully hydrated back. When you pack them, you're going to pull them out. We use a um, salad spinner. Our salad spinner is a bag. We scoop it out with, a, with like a laundry sack. We put it into a, uh, a washing machine because a washing machine can be bleached and cleaned. And you turn it on the spin cycle, and it's like a great, great big salad spinner. When you take it out of that, it'll go into a bag that's in a wax box. That's how we do it. We do about seven pounds in those boxes. That folds up and that goes into a cooler and it will crisp. Our salad mix will last as most people, if they store it right at home, it'll last them two weeks. And so you compare that to what you get at the grocery store. And this is the difference between processing something fresh and correctly, how well it will hold for people. So Alan and Aubrey are gonna come up now. Uh, this is our planting plan. They're gonna talk a lot about their planting plan. And I just want to show that last picture of the farm. Isn't that pretty? So hang here, please. 15, 10, 15 more minutes. Okay, so we are super excited about succession planting and what we have to show you today. This is like, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you guys are the first to see this type of information. So this is extremely fundamental to being able to meet your market demand. And um, we're just really stoked about this. So hopefully you'll find this extremely useful and it will save you a tremendous amount of time. This is a really practical tool and it's applicable for all zones as far as your personal growing zone. So um, Aubrey's going to take it on starting here. So anyways, I just wanted to say I'm just super excited. So here's Aubrey. So why does succession planting matter? <laughs> why does succession, succession planting matter? Well, when we think about it, we think it's one of the things that really separates the market farmer, the market gardener from the home gardener. It's kind of one of those things that separates the men from the boys uh, because it's not easy. And a lot of folks just don't, just, just, just prefer doing it off the seat of, um, what's the word? Off the seat of their pants? Yeah, something like that. Um, Flying by the seat of their pants. Flying by the seat of their pants. That's go. it. Yeah. Um, but when you're 
starting and you don't have years and years of experience farming, it's not exactly a natural thing to do to be able to figure out even though it's incredibly important. Because unlike the home gardener who just grows whatever comes up, the market gardener, the market farmer, has deadlines to meet, clients to please, all these different kinds of things. So succession planting is vital when it comes to having a successful market uh, production. Essentially, you want to plant on time to harvest on time. That's the basic understanding of succession planting. But the big question is, well, how do you know when to plant? And Alan, the genius that he is, has come up with a very... I paid her a lot. No. no. <laughs> a very special new tool. And um, he was explaining it to me. And, and it's free. It's a free special new tool right now. We're giving it away for um, a limited special time. Whatever. Um, <laughs> So he was explaining it to me, and I'm like, I am not, I do not possess the genius abilities that you do. We've got to figure out a way to explain it to those who have my mental capabilities. So we teamed up, and I think we have created a version that combines his genius with my limited understanding. So hopefully, it's easier for you to get. Not that you're not geniuses. But, you know, just in case, uh, just in case. If I can get it, you if I can get it any, anyone, anyone can get it. Okay? Yeah. So it gives beginners a leg up. You can essentially take this tool and use it to start figuring out successful succession plantings on your own production, which is incredibly cool. Now, just a little bit of disclaimer. We've worked on it the last month or so, so it doesn't have years of trial behind it. There could be some things that still need to be fixed. Uh, I was like, Alan, I'm really scared to release this now. And he's like, it's now or never. <laughs> no. Uh, so anyways, this is where you are our experiment. And uh, we have a feeling that it will be greatly successful. But there will probably be a little be bumps along the way. So Alan's going to explain like, how you start to figure out using the, the special new tool. And I will say that we have used this tool to a less accurate limited degree for the last three years on our farm and we found it relatively accurate so I'm hoping that it translates to you guys because I translated the information for this graph from a grower Elliot Coleman actually in zone five to my zone so if it can translate there I'm hoping that I can translate it back. You see what I'm saying? And, and we're going to define what zones mean in yes, just a couple of yeah. minutes. Well, yeah okay Kay. so my turn. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, so the overall idea of, of succession planting. So let's just hypothetically say that you are, you're wanting to sell lettuce for eight weeks. That's what it says. It says eight weeks. Can everyone see that? Eight weeks. Okay, so that's your season, and it starts at a certain time, and it ends at a certain time. You know, this is a very simplistic model. Um, and let's say that in order to do this, and this is what I found for lettuce, for lettuce specifically, you will have to decide in your own area how long a crop can actually hold in the field viably because there is a, there's a finite period of time because lettuce, after it gets to a certain age, it's going to bolt and go to seed and it's going to get bitter. So you have to get it in that sweet spot where it's mature but not over mature. So for lettuce, we found in Oklahoma, which would be very similar for you guys here in Texas, uh, for those who live in Texas, it's about two weeks. You really don't want to push it more than that. So I want lettuce coming in in two-week intervals. So it starts this week, it goes two weeks, then it ends, and the next one comes in. So very simple. I need to have how many successions? 
four successions to cover my eight weeks. Very good. Man, you guys are smart. Okay, so, um, so that's the idea. And, you know, I used to think it was as simple as this. Okay, so I want it to be available for two weeks. So that means it needs to be mature um, at that time. Therefore, I take the days to maturity on the back of the seed packet, and I just, you know, go backwards in the year, 48 days, and I plant then, and I should have lettuce in 48 days, right? Simple enough, right? Well, this is how I thought it was, but it, there's a bit of a problem. There's something called common planting time, and that's when people that sell seeds anticipate the people that grow the seeds they sell when they're actually going to grow them. And so for here in Texas, you're looking at your common planting time is going to be roughly from April 15 to July 25. Most people don't grow fall gar gardens. Most people don't grow really early spring gardens. Or, and most people, so it's right, after your last frost date, everyone puts their stuff in, it rolls through the season, and they're done. That's how it works. And so this is good if you're just a gardener because you're not worried about having things in the uncommon time period. You're only worried about when it's commonly available or when it can commonly grow. So that's the important thing. Your seed packet is only accurate. Those 48 days to maturity are only accurate within that common planting time. Now, here's the question. What happens when you want to plant in the uncommon planting time where it's colder on either end of the season? And, there's an, and it looks like this. Okay, so we have what's on the seed packet, we have when we want it, but there's this blue unknown of like, how many days before now do I have to, add, if I'm going outside of the common time, when do I actually need to plant this thing? Well, that's where this special new tool comes into place, a succession planting graph. Okay, so we're going to work through this, and we're going to show you a picture real quick. This is what it looks like, and this, looks, this is going to look overwhelming. Don't be scared. We're going to walk through it in a sim simplified version, but this is how powerful this tool, uh, well, you'll see, you'll see. So um, this is what it looks like, okay? So it's like, woo! Anyways, but that's what it looks like. Now we're going to break it down. Simple version, kindergarten. No, just kidding. Um, so this is, this is, we're going to just quickly walk you through this. So this is zone eight, which is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Okay, very good. That's where we are right here. And these, this graph is going to tell us when we need to plant stuff outside, not in a hoop house, not with any extra stuff, just outside in zone eight. Okay, now if you look here, April 15, uh, well, sorry. Okay, so let's start to understand this graph. Okay, so basically what I've done here is I've translated, this is, this is a small graph. There's only 18 weeks in this graph. The other graphs or the other spreadsheet has 52 weeks. So don't worry, we haven't shortened the year or anything. The other one will have more, but this is just for the sake of example. So we have uh, 18 weeks here. So this is the first part of the year. I, in, in my planting time, when I say, oh, I want to plant a crop in my scheduling on my farm, I eliminate all the dates and I just go to weeks because it's a lot more simple. Dates change from year to year, so I go on a week-based system. But we have, uh, so those, that's what those, you know, first week of January, second week of January, third week of January, fourth week of January, right? These things up here. So now you kind of know the months and how they relate to the weeks, okay? The dates? The months. the months. Yeah, they. I guess they will vary. But the weeks, there's always 52 weeks. So anyways, so how this works is, is that we have this graph, right? 
And so we, we kind of know where we are in the stream of time of the year, and we have the week numbers to go along with it. So now you kind of understand that. Now, I will point out here, these numbers that are above the weeks but below the month indicators, those represent additional weeks to maturity. So let's say I take the first week of January and I want to plant my lettuce. I'm going to have to, I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? Oh, anyways, those are the additional weeks to maturity. We'll come back to that. And I'll point out here that since this is after the, the third week of April, since that's after April 15 for this area, it goes to zero because now what's on the back of your seed packet is actually going to be accurate. That, that's the common planting time, right? Very good. So now we kind of under, does everyone get, get this? Any, any kind of little clarification? We're good. Very good. Hey, we did good, Aubrey. They, they understand. Okay. So now let's do an experiment. So let's say that I want to have my lettuce, lettuce crop 48 days to maturity in zone eight. Let's say I want to have that available week 18, which is the, well, fifth week of April. It's, it's, it's a little screwy because sometimes months share weeks. Um, so let's say that I want to have it then. Okay. What do I need to do in order to know when I need to actually seed that thing in the ground in zone eight? Well, this is how it works. First, we're going to divide 48 by seven to get a rough estimate. We want to convert it to weeks so that it's just blocked up. So it, it's, it's 6.85. We're going to just go up to seven, right? So we go back. Well, look, it takes us uh, to the second week of March there, week 11. But look at above what week 11. It says two. Well, that represents two additional weeks to maturity. That's going to push me to week 20, not to week 18. So I c if I plant then, it's going to push my projected harvest date two weeks further into the year, and I just can't have that. I have to meet some sort of deadline. A chef wants something for a special event. My, my market starts at a certain time. It's going to be late. It's not going to work. So what do I do? Well, we're going to show you. So what we do is we've got to count back the number of blocks or the number of weeks until the number we count back equals the number above the week. So let me show you. Here's my little arrow. Okay, so we count one block. What's the number above it? So it's not going to work. Two, what's the number? Not going to work. Three, what's the number? Four, oh, look at that. It skipped us again. It says five. Five, oh, it's six. Six, six. Okay, six, six, six. No, anyways. Um, so that's when we need... <laughs> that's when we need to plant the <laughs> that okay let's go back let's go back let's go back okay okay let me try to explain so it says two because here let me take this this way so if you plant any time in this area you don't have to add any weeks to get 48 days to maturity but if you plant here it's going to bump you two additional weeks this direction so this isn't oh I need to plant two weeks early this is if I plant here it's gonna come in two weeks late two weeks later than I wanted so then the idea is you need to count back until the number that you're counting equals the number above the week 
So this doesn't have anything to do with, okay, this is... This only tells me if I'm planting here, when, how many additional weeks I need to add, which is going to push me two weeks farther than what I want. So the lettuce will actually come to harvest on week, week 20, 20 instead, instead of, week, of 18. week 18, but we need it on week 18. So then, being here, because this, this is the 48 days on the seed packet, then we start counting back. We say one. One, so this is so one week, but it doesn't match here. Two weeks, but it doesn't match here. Three weeks, doesn't match. Four weeks, doesn't match. Five weeks, doesn't match. Six weeks, six. and it matches the six. So that is then when you plant. Because if... <laughs> I said we need to try to draw it in a circle because what essentially is happening here with the way the temper is it temperature? It's temperature and light. It's a mixture of the two. The way it's working is when you look at the year and how the temperature works, it actually does this kind of swoop type of thing during your year. Well, so you're needing to pull yourself up further. I have a suggestion. Let's keep going because we're going to do a couple more examples and I think it might start clicking a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, you can take a picture of it or you can just download it offline for your particular zone. That's what <laughs> Anyway, sorry. So <laughs> We're going to have it on the on the uh, website, the Adventist the Adventist Ag AdventistAg.org. .org. We're going to have it up there. I'm going to send it in the links in, and then we'll have it each. Yeah. So we'll just keep going. By the end of it, if you still don't get it, talk to us one-on-one, -on -one and we'll work on explaining it. But I think it's going to start making more sense with a couple more examples. It took me a few examples. So there we are, week six. So to get lettuce coming in on week 18, we have to plant it six additional weeks Look, beyond and, the 48 days. And this is for outside. This is if it's outside without any additional protection, right? This is just open, right? So don't think that, oh, well, I, I put row cover. It's going to mess. It's gonna, we'll, we'll talk about how to, to calibrate it for that. Shh, can I talk about the zones Sorry, real quick? Ahead. Okay. Zone eight, yeah. So I realize that I should have put this in just a little bit earlier to clarify. What zone are you? Does everyone understand the concept of zones? Okay, so let me show oh, what I would recommend. It's an incredibly great resource. If you Google interactive map USDA plant hardiness zone map, they actually have it where you can go in, punch in your zip code, and it'll show you exactly where you are and what zone it is. Because sometimes it varies. For example, this Glen Rose area, this is actually zone 7B. Dallas-Fort Worth is zone 8A. And you would not think that There's this a is a different zone than... Dallas-Fort Worth area, but it is. It's a zone up from a half a zone up. And these zones are very accurate. They're satellite images taken by NASA, and they update these, and they, they're constantly shifting and changing based on mean averages. So it's like, this is really good information. So I'll just say that. So there's 13 zones currently. That's what they have divided it into, and they're divided into half zones. So you have 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B, 3A, 3B. So this is a map of the United States. Um, you'll see the top. It's kind of hard to see because of the r resolution. But 1A is at the very top, kind of in that cold, purpley, lavender color. Yeah, like northern Alaska. And then... Anyone from northern Alaska here? 
then it goes all the way down to 13B, which is we have a little bit of it maybe on Puerto Rico. So that kind of gives you the idea of the, of the spans. Most people are growing in between the zones, and zones drastically affect how you grow. Just like, you know, in, in New England, they can only grow a few months out of the year, and then it's snow every rest of the time, and we can grow much longer, and we hardly ever have snow except for, like, yesterday. Um, so these are the zones idea, and I recommend that Google map, not the Google map, but the interactive map, um, it's really, really, really interesting. Um, we have created these special graphs for zone 2A to 13B, because I figured that people who are living in zone 1A and B probably don't have access to computers or gardens or, you know, they're, they're living in... well blubber and in, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> probably not relevant. Um, but... Passive heat drastically affects our little special graph and how it functions. Because here's an example of passive heat. This is a one layer of row cover, row cover on, on low hoops. And each additional layer that you add of passive heat adds one and a half zones to your current zone area. So what that means is in Oklahoma, we, where we are in Oklahoma, we're in zone 7B. If we add a layer of, of a row cover on a low hoop, we then translate to 7B, 8A, 8B, right? So now we're in zone 8B, which has a dramatic effect on when you can actually plant things in shortened times. 9A, yeah. Zone and a half, yes, yeah. 9A. So like I said, I, anyways. It gets a little tricky. So you see, yeah, it gets a little tricky. So then outside is one zone and inside is a zone and a half to the south. So then if you have two, like this is our row cover in on our low hoops, and then you have a hoop house on top, it's an additional layer and a half to the south. So outside is zone 8, inside is zone 9, a, and then inside of that is zone 11. 9.5? What is 9.5? It's one and a half. Zone. Okay. This is for the Dallas, this is back to zone 8 for the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So then how does that affect our little uh, special graft? How does it affect maturity time? Yeah. Do you want to explain? So basically, this, it's the same process, guys. Same process. We, it, your, your baseline is still going to be your baseline. There are a few exceptions, and I can talk about those. Maybe I should, well, let, let's finish this. Um, it's not going to affect anyone here, let's just put it that way. But, okay, so we have our seven weeks. Then we're going to count back. One. It's not one, it's two. Two, it's three. Three, it's three. So, what is it, Aubrey? This is when you'd need to plant under one single layer of row cover. That's how much bump it gives you. It, three weeks bump. It's tremendous. It's, it, basically what it does is it's, it's leveling those extremes that your zone makes and bringing them down. Sorry. It's leveling those extremes that your zone makes. So, so for instance, think of it flat down here as zero additional days to maturity. If you go into the fall, those days, additional days to maturity will grow. 
and in the, of course, in the spring, they grow as well when you're coming in. And it, it, but it's course it's warming up, so they're starting to decrease. The idea is that that row cover basically, instead of it being such a, a steep hill on either ends, it just it kind of levels that out a little bit. It softens those curves. Okay, so what happens if we do a double layer of, of, of cover with a greenhouse inside a hoop house? What does that do for us? Aubrey, oh, yeah, okay. So one, two, two, two. So it, it bumps us a week. The thing is, is that the closer you get to what your seed packet says, the, the less of a jump it's gonna make for you, if that makes sense, because your baseline is always gonna be your baseline. It's just how close it's getting you to that baseline. I don't know if that makes sense. Okay, that makes okay, very good. Okay, so that's how this graph works. So you can see the difference. Zone eight, this is what you're looking at as additional. This is that unknown zone. Now we, we know what it is. It's six weeks. Here it's three, here it's two. This is how powerful season extension can work on leveling those curves for you. Or let's say that you planted something and you didn't quite, you planted it late for some reason. Let's say you meant to plant here in zone eight, but Unfortunately, because of some certain situation, you were, you were three weeks late. Well, I know that I'm still not going to be late because if I want put one layer of row cover on, I can bump that and I can make up that time in the spring. Of course, in the summer, it's, it's level, so you're not going to make up that time. But yeah, it, that's how powerful and that, that's, that's how much difference this, this, this stuff can make. And that's why these uh, spreadsheets are so um, awesome. Okay, so anyways, um, what's, okay, and of course, all of this, we're, we are translating this information from some graphs that Elliot Coleman made, um, and that was over 12 years of collecting data from the wintertime. So these, remember that these are a guide, they're a mean average of someone's climate, which means that it could be a little warmer for you one year, it could be a little colder for you one year. The idea is that the, uh, we can't predict the future. All we can do is try to take the averages and get a mean average of our experience and then base off of that because every year there's going to be slight fluctuations. So they're a guide. They're not like written stone. But the idea is to get you close. And um, yeah. And then the next thing is where's the snowflake? I don't know. Huh. Okay. Anyways, it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> that's not an important part. It's just Anyways, um, so uh, crop considerations. One thing to consider here is that even though you are putting these row covers on, okay, and you're, you're tweaking your environment, you still live where you live. And you might still get a polar vortex that comes down or whatnot that can, can really get colder than maybe what it would ever make it to a zone nine. So there's still some situations in which you need to be careful that this will work well because f f like lettuce and kale and stuff, those are freeze co tolerant crops. They can freeze and unfreeze. If there's a, a, a crazy thing that happens during the season and you get a really cold snap or something that's even unusual for your zone, um, these things can freeze and unfreeze okay. But if you had tomatoes out there, they might not do so well. So you want to be careful on how far you push these graphs as far as what they'll do for you, if that makes sense. So um, what I would do is I definitely would not plant, and this would be a rule of thumb, but I wouldn't, so let's say I, I put a single layer of row cover. I wouldn't, cons and I know that for the zone and a half farther south, their last frost date is, let's say, let's say 
uh, mine is uh, March 15 where I am. Well, in a zone a half, it's April 15, let's say, okay? Then if I'm putting a single layer of row cover, I'm not gonna go any farther back than what that actually moves me. So I won't plant before March 15 because that's the only amount of protection that that layer is gonna give me. I'm not gonna plant that any before that because it's not a cold tolerant crop. So you have to, does that make sense? You just gotta be careful um, with what you do as far as that's concerned. Um, and is there anything else, Aubrey? Okay, so we're done. Right, so the question was is that the, the row cover is only for freezing temperatures, so wouldn't you remove that during the day? Well, that's true, but I might not, re depending on what's under it, because that's, that's a big thing. If it's tomatoes, I probably won't until after my frost date in my area. Now, if it's lettuce and stuff, you might be able to get away with that, but the thing is is that what we're wanting to do here is that the only time you're really going to be using row cover is when you're wanting to push your season outside of its normal boundaries. And so you're going to leave that row cover on, especially row cover, because row cover also has the way of self-venting itself, okay, where it's, it's not like a plastic, it's actually permeable, it's, it's like a, a, a blanket. So you can get away with leaving that closed usually um, with row cover. With plastic, that's a different story. Plastic, um, you, you might need to vent as well if you're using that as your single layer. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I personally for me, so the I trying to remember the question. The idea is that would it make any difference if you removed it like you wouldn't want to remove it during the day because it would skew your numbers. Is that what you're saying? If you remove the row cover? I mean, uh, yeah, that's I mean, the idea is that with the row cover is that you're taking in solar energy during the day it's resting in the soil and then it's like a cloud over your crop and it's holding that in at night. So if you're not taking advantage of that solar energy and collecting it, then the row cover is not gonna do you as much good, if that makes sense. So, yeah. Um, and then this only works with two layers, let me say that. When you go beyond two layers, you're, 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 the light that you cut down is not gonna make up. So it's not like you can continue putting layer on layer and whoa, I'm in zone 13 now. And, it doesn't work that way. It, it only works for a minimal amount. So don't go beyond two layers. It just, you just don't, you won't get the light and you're going to start going the other way. Yes, sir. Okay, so how, how do we know how many weeks to take off for one and a half zones? Well, this is, this really depends on what zone you are. So this is how the graph works. First, you have to find, yeah. So first you have to find the zone that you're in. In this case, it's zone 11, let's say. Okay? Well, let's go back to the, to the other zone, okay? Yeah, go back to zone 8. So you have to find out where you are, right? And where you are will depend on what zone you translate to. And the zones are, I believe, they're increments of 5 degrees difference. They're, they're cold hardiness. The zones are, are based on cold hardiness, which basically means that Let's say it gets to, uh, this is just a negative 50 degrees where I live, okay? The difference between, no, that wouldn't, well, let me, let me put it this way. Let's say I get to negative 10. This will make, this will be a little bit more reasonable. Let's say I get to negative 10. The difference between negative, uh, the, and that would be, let's say, zone, let's say it was zone 6A, okay? So, 
The difference between zone 10A and zone 10B is five degrees. So even between zones, there's these five degree block differences between them, okay? What, what Coleman did is basically, because he says 1.5 zones, what we did is that we had to find the factor that corroborated with each of those five degree differences. And the factor is not in the graph, but we have that factor. And basically, we calculated the factor of, ch oh boy, this is real, this, this gets complicated. Um, yeah, maybe I should answer that question privately. That's just a really technical question. I'm sorry. It's a good question. It's a good question, but it's 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 not so simple. Yes, Larry. The weight of row cover must Yeah, the weight of row cover. I mean, and this is this is where it comes back to uh, comes down to mean averages. Okay, and the idea is that there's going to be a little bit of difference between maybe the weight of row cover you use versus someone else. Here's, here's what I would say. There are weights of row covers that are meant for bug protection. They're not meant for heat. And then there are weights that are meant for heat. So I use one ounce per yard row cover on my farm to 1.5, okay? The differences between those two, I believe, are negligible when it comes to this graph. Now, if you're using something that it says pest protection, that layer will not count. It has to be a layer that's actually rated for some temperature difference, okay? And so I can show you guys personally in catalogs what I use, what I order, and, and um, it's going to be close enough. Remember, we're, this is not just a science. It's also a bit, there, there's, there's factors in here that are going to tweak. We're just wanting to get you close to where you need to be, and then you're going to have to tweak these numbers maybe slightly for your particular situation, if that makes sense. We want to get your foot in the door because for me, this was overwhelming. It's like, when do I plant to get what I need? And no one has any graph that can relate between zones. This gets you started. This gets you close. This gets your foot in the door. Mm -hmm. this, this, these equal the additional weeks to maturity, the ones above. And I'm so sorry for those people on Audioverse that can't see this graph. It's going to be difficult, but um, we're hopefully going to give our slides so that they can go through them. Okay, we're going to need to close this meeting for right now. Uh, guys, if you have any questions, you can just come up and ask us personally. Um, yeah, let's say a word of prayer, and then we'll go. Dear Father in heaven, we just want to thank you for this day, for all this information, and Lord, for the opportunity to share uh, all this stuff so that other people might be able to make a quicker success of their farming operations than we have. Please bless us as we go have lunch, and um, may your will be done during the rest of this conference. In your name we ask, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.